You know, I I always look forward to the Sabbath. I think it is a wonderful opportunity that we have to meet on God's holy day. Um, Susan talked about some of the headlines and stuff, and we who are prophecy students know where this is headed. And uh, um, it, we can be a little anxious about that until we recognize that God is in control and we're in His hand. You know, someday soon if you're in a prison or maybe in a cave, you know, God can make a mountain appear anywhere <laughs> or a cave. Um, I think you'll look back at this moment I hope with great pleasure and joy. And remember, you know, those days, those Sabbath days when I used to gather together and worship with the saints. And we have a day coming where all the saints will be together and we'll be with Jesus. Amen. And what a day that's going to be. Every Sabbath to us is, is actually a token of that. It's a token of eternal rest that God is going to bring when Jesus returns. To get his children. Why the cross? Why the cross? You know, when Jesus was here, the focal point of the religion of the Jewish people was the law of God. That was the focal point. If you study the Jewish ceremonial system, you study their sacrifices, the sanctuary, uh, their priesthood, the focal point of their entire religion was the law of God and how to obtain forgiveness of sin and atonement if you had broken the law of God. But if you have your Bible, I want you to look at something that Jesus said. It's found in John chapter 7 and it's verse 19. Look at what Jesus told them about their condition with the law. Remember, this is, this is what the, their whole focal point was, was on the law of God. But notice what Jesus said in John 7 verse 19. He said, Did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you keepeth the law. Why go ye about to kill me? Now, that is rather a paradox, is it not? That the focal point of your religion, the central point in the sanctuary, think of that, you studied the sanctuary, the, cent- the, the central point in the sanctuary was where the Ten Commandments were, inside the ark. That was the focal point of everything. Yet the center or the focal point of your religion, you do not keep. You say that's the focal point, but you do not keep it. Now, what would you call that? What, what kind of condition is that, right? It is profession, having a profession but no reality. And, and beloved, did you know that we're in a very similar condition today? as God's people. Now the law of God is not the focal point of our religion like it was the Jews. You know, if you go out to Colorado Springs, they have the Air Force Academy. And it's very interesting. I've seen pictures of it. I've never been there. 
I was close one time. I wanted to go there when I was in Colorado, but didn't get a chance to go. Um, but the chapel there at the Air Force Academy there in Colorado Springs has three sections that are for three churches, basically. On the main floor of the chapel, there is the Protestant chapel. And in the Protestant religion, the pulpit is in the center, in the front of the worship service. And the reason for that is because Protestants are supposed to focus on the Word of God and the proclamation of the Word of God. And there's an, a, a reason that they're in the center there so that when they proclaim, it reaches everyone equally. Approximately equally. <laughs> okay. And that's central in our religion as a Protestant. The Word of God and the proclamation of the Word of God. You go downstairs there, and there's another place just as big that is the Roman Catholic Chapel uh, of the Air Force Academy. But then off to the side, there is the third place for a worship service, and that is for those that are of the Jewish faith. And it's interesting, I, I noticed, that in the Jewish chapel up in the front, you know what they have? What would you think that they would have? the very front. They have the Ten Commandments. They have the symbols of the tables of the Ten Commandments right there in front. That's the main focal point of their religion to this day. But in the Protestant chapel, what do you suppose is up front? It's the It's the cross. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's the cross. The cross is the focal point of the Christian religion. Paul said in Galatians 6.14, and that was our scripture reading for today, he said, but God forbid that I should glory, save in the what? The Ten Commandments? He didn't say that. He said, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom? By Jesus Christ. Who he's saying, by whom the world is crucified unto me. What was the cross? What happened at the cross? Jesus was what? Crucified. crucified. And so Paul's relating that. He says, the world's crucified to me. And I into the world. If you go around, if you go around Battle Creek, any town really, you'll see crosses on churches all over the city or town, wherever you're at. And if you look, you'll see crosses dangling from the rear view mirrors in people's cars or as stickers on their bumpers. You'll see crosses as a necklace hanging from people's necks sometimes, I see that. So the cross is a symbol or a focal point of our religion as Christians. But the Jews... We see there in John 7 and verse 19, the focal point of their religion, they were not even keeping it. The commandments. Jesus said, Moses gave you the law, but you don't even keep it. Why are you wanting to kill me? So what's the big deal? Well, let me tell you something. There are millions of people, millions of people that profess Christianity and they have seen the cross in churches. They, they've seen them on top of, 
uh, of the outside of the churches. Maybe they have even worn it around their neck and they have got it hanging from their rear view mirror, you know, in their car, and they don't even know what it means. They don't know what it's all about. It is just like the Jews. It is the focal point of their religion, and they don't even understand it. The Bible makes it very clear that the majority of people that profess Christianity will be lost. How is that so? The Bible makes it clear, and it's because they don't understand the cross. And when they come to the final judgment, you know what God's going to do? He's going to present the cross. And I want to tell you, when when He presents it, and the people see what it means, they're not going to have an excuse. Because there are none. The Bible says they'll be speechless. You see, to people today, the cross is like a charm, or it's a symbol, but they don't understand what it means. And so the question for us today is, do we understand what it means? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, he said, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The preaching of the cross is what? It's the power of God. Now, some people think that if you were in a Christian church, the cross would be one of the easiest things to preach about. But let me assure you, if you understand what it means, it's not the easiest thing to preach about. Not at all. It actually is one of the most difficult subjects to present if you understand what it means. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because when the cross is presented in truth... People are going to get unhappy and people are going to get angry. So it's not an easy thing to really talk about. People do not understand what the cross means and when you tell them, they really don't want to hear about it because it cuts straight to the heart. And then what happens? Tough decisions are required. What are you going to do with the cross? People don't want that kind of decision. (laughs) So, the preaching of the cross and its meaning isn't preached much in churches today. Did you know that? My son, before he got married, his, his wife, Kayla, she's from a Christian family. Of course, they, they worship on Sunday. They're very conservative. Very, very conservative. But they worship on Sunday, and, and Josh and Kayla had made a, a deal. Kayla would come and worship with us one Sabbath, and then Josh would go and worship with them one Sunday. And so, <laughs> they did that. Kayla came and worshiped with us on one Sabbath. We had a very good fellowship and everything. And then Josh went to there, and I asked him one time, I said, how'd that go? And he said, Dad, is the weirdest thing I've ever done in my life. He said, I didn't feel right the whole time. I said, well, how could you? (laughs) You know. 
once you know the Sabbath truth, what, how can you go back? But you know, it's his wife, and and now we've counseled and talked to him about the. Well, it wasn't his wife at the time. At the time, it wasn't his wife. It was yeah. his But you know, I said, you know, this is one reason why God says that when you marry, you are to marry in the same faith, because you're really asking for a lot of problems. And then when you have kids, and she's expecting. There's going to be issues, you know. But you know, sometimes love is blind, right? But he said it, it, it was. Uh, it's very weird. He said that the. He said there was a lot of music, and that didn't bother him too much because he's very musical. But he said there was a lot of music, and and the guy preached. He said I probably heard one scripture, and that was it. And it was all just kind of mush. There was no meat, you know, no, just nothing. It just didn't appeal to him at all, and I really praise God for that. Um, but the preaching of the cross and its meaning, see, isn't preached in churches today that profess to be Christian churches. They have the symbol, they don't have the substance. The truth of the cross isn't heard much today. And get this, from Our High Calling, page 46, Ellen White said on one occasion, she said, the cross has been almost lost sight of. Not the symbol. You see the symbol everywhere. But the cross. Why the cross? The meaning of the cross has been almost lost sight of, she said. Like I said, that doesn't mean that people aren't seeing crosses on the churches or around other people's necks or in the rearview mirror or wherever, because the symbol is everywhere. They're seeing all those things, but they don't really see what it's about or what it means. That's what what they don't see. And and I want to tell you that if you take the cross away, the prophet tells us it'd be just like taking the sun out of the heavens. If you were to take the cross of Christ away, not the symbol. The truth of it, what it means, everything would be lost. Without the cross, you can't have a connection with the Heavenly Father, can you? You can have no union with Jesus without the cross. You can have no hope that in the day of judgment that you'll be acquitted without the cross. And there's no means provided for you to overcome your sins. Without that cross. In fact, every hope that you have for the future is based on the truth of the cross if you understand it. So I want to study with you from the scriptures about the cross and more especially what it means and what will happen to us if we come to it and we get close to it and we understand why it was needed. We'll start in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the what witness? Faithful witness. And the what? First begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, notice this, unto him that, what? Loved us. 
unto Him that loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The first thing that we understand when we come to the cross is that it is a pledge. It's a promise. It's a guarantee of the boundless, infinite, unmeasurable love that God has for you and me. That has to be the first thing that we see there. Jesus said in John 10 that He didn't have to do this. Did you know that? We as human beings, we get into situations where we can't help ourselves. We get into situations from, you know, accidents or or sickness or suffering. We can't help ourselves. But Jesus was not in that situation. He didn't have to come down here. And He didn't have to offer His life upon the cross for our sins. He didn't have to do that. You remember what Jesus prayed to His Father there in the Garden of Gethsemane? Remember, He prayed three times. Matthew 26, verse 39, just one time, said He went a little further, fell on His face, and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, what? Yeah. Let this cup pass from me. His humanity was really fighting Him, wasn't it? Then he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Jesus prayed that same prayer, like I said, three times. Luke said that it was so awful for Jesus, and his sufferings were so great that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood that dripped to the ground. Do you realize, have you ever thought this through? That when Jesus was suffering at that time, during that agony, that He could have decided just to wipe the bloody sweat from His his brow. He could have wiped it away. He could have said, I'm not going through with this. I'm leaving. He could have. That's what He was saying. Take this cup from me. (laughs) He could have gone back up to His Father in heaven where there were angels that adored Him. He could have just left. But if He had, there would be no way that you and I could have been redeemed from our sins. No way. It would have been over. What did the text say in Revelation 1.5? Unto Him that what? Loved us. I don't think we comprehend the love of God. He did it because He loved us. He loved us enough to make a way so that He could take away our sins. And what was the price to take away our sins? His blood. And that is the mystery of the Christian religion. (laughs) The one that died to pay the price for your sin is one who was not under the law. You realize that? An angel or another human being could not die to take away our sins. They were all created under the law. They were subject to the law. All angels, all created beings are subject to the law of God. 
But upon the Son of God, well, He doesn't have that yoke upon Him. He was above the law. And it was His life and His life alone that could satisfy the claims of the broken law. That's why it had to be Him. I mean, do you realize that God's law is so holy that He would not do away with it or change it in the slightest way? Even to save angels around His throne? Paul says in Romans 7 verse 12, he says, Wherefore the law is what? Holy and the commandment holy and just and good. The cross is proof to us that there is somebody that loves you more than your mother, more than your father, more than your sister or your brother or your wife or your husband or anybody else. There's somebody that loves you, and this isn't exaggerating, with an everlasting love. And that's what you call it. The love of God is an everlasting love. He loves you so much that He's willing to suffer in order to save you. Why did He have to go to the cross to suffer to save us? Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. The first thing that we learn from the cross is that God loves you with a love that is infinite. The second thing we learned from the cross was that Jesus died for our sins and His death changes my mind completely about sin. Now I want you to think that through. How does the cross change your mind about sin? Well, let me ask you this. Is sin a terrible thing? We say that, but when it comes down to, to, to living, do we practice it? That's a question, isn't it? Is sin a terrible thing? What is sin? Transgression of the law. <laughs> Very good. First John 3, verse 4, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And in context, it's talking about the Ten Commandments. So if Jesus died for my sins, then sin is a terrible thing. Do you believe that? Most people don't believe that. But just think it through a bit. If I choose to sin, I'm choosing to do the very thing that sent Jesus to the cross to die. I'm choosing that. So I've got a question for you. And don't answer it right away, but think about this. Do I understand the cross if I choose to sin? Not really. Unless I have decided that I openly hate the Lord. Now if you've decided that you hate the Lord and you're not going to follow Him, then you're free to choose sin and do whatever you want. But if you choose to sin... Somehow you don't understand the cross because sin is what sent Jesus to the cross. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? 
And when you come to the, the cross and it starts to go through your mind and you, you ask yourself, why did this have to happen? It's so awful. What was done at the cross and it had to happen because of my sins. So it changes my mind about sin. And a person who's never been to the cross is a person that loves sin. Because you see, the Bible tells me that the cross melts hearts. It changes people. And a person who has never been to the cross, he loves sin. Oh, he may he may not love all kinds of sin. You don't have to love all kinds of sin, do you? One's enough, isn't it? How many sins did Adam and Eve have to commit in order to be bring in this flood of evil and iniquity to the world? Just one. And because of that one, we had a promise that God was going to send a sacrifice. That promise is in Genesis 3.15. So if I choose to sin, I don't understand the cross. Like I need to understand it. I don't understand it at all unless I've decided to reject the Lord and I've decided that I hate Him and I want to go my own way. But if I profess to be a Christian and I profess to be following Jesus, if I profess His name and I choose to sin, there's something terribly wrong. I have to question whether I've really come to the cross or not. Have I ever really understood it? Do I understand it yet? And so, beloved, I hope you're seeing that you cannot love something that caused Jesus to die and yet be a Christian and love Him. You cannot love sin and love Jesus at the same time. That's impossible. You see, if I love sin, and I, I'm going to hate the Lord. That's literally, literally the way it is. I can profess anything I want. I can go do church. But if I love sin, I hate the Lord. And if I love the Lord, I hate sin. You can't have it any other way. You cannot love a person at the same time love something else that brings torture to that person. That's impossible, really. You can't say that you love your wife and then hurt your wife at the same time. I'm doing this because I love you. I remember when growing up, I'd get in trouble and Dad would put a whipping on me and say, this hurts you more than it hurts me. Or this hurts me more than it hurts you. Yeah, and I was thinking, no, this is hurting me more than it's hurting you. <laughs> yeah, reverse that. Strike that. Reverse it. The cross is a, a revelation to our dull senses of the pain that from its very inception, sin is brought to the heart of God. Now, there are some people that are so mistaken in their understanding of Christianity that they think that you can just go and sin and then come and confess. And then go and sin and come and confess and sin and confess and sin and confess their whole life. Did Jesus die on the cross so that you could keep sinning and going to confession your whole life? That wasn't the purpose of it. There are millions of professing Christians that believe just that, though. Millions. 
But they've been sold a bill of goods, haven't they? And that bill of goods is leading them to hell, and very quickly so. The Apostle Paul talked about this very thing in the book of Romans. Look in Romans 6, verse 1 and 2. He said, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid! How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? How can we do that? Look at verses 15 and 16. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Isn't that what you hear today? Oh, we're under grace. So I can do whatever but because I'm under grace. Paul says, God forbid I do that. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? Who is your master? Not who you profess to be your master. Who's your master? You know, we insult the Holy Spirit if we deliberately sin and then confess and then go out and deliberately sin and confess. I mean, that's gotten so bad that there are people there are people that actually go out and kill people and then go to confession and then go right back out and kill people and then go to confession. Or they may buy an indulgence. I'm going to go out and kill someone. Here, I'm going to pay for that. Here you go. Here's some money. Absolve me from that sin that I'm about to do. They call themselves Christians. I see it from a lot of people who are unbelievers now. They'll, they'll, they'll throw that up at us, these false Christians. Well, you guys read the same Bible, don't you? Well, they're not really Christians. They're not. Preaching of the cross is what? Foolishness to them that perish. But you continue to do something like that. Notice what uh, Paul said in Hebrews 10.26, For if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. There comes a time, friends, a person has abused the grace of God so long that the Holy Spirit leaves them. It's referred to as the unpardonable sin. They sin and they confess, but they go and they deliberately sin again and then they confess. There comes a time when the Lord says, you have abused my mercy my grace long enough. There's no longer going to be a sacrifice for your sin. That's the unpardonable sin. What is an unpardonable sin? Any sin that is unrepentant is the unpardonable sin. People think it's just one sin. If I know what that one sin is, I'll keep from it. No. The unpardonable sin may be different for me than it is for you. You know, the cross has a wonderful message for every sinner. But don't abuse the mercy of God. Don't play with it and say, oh well, I can go and sin and confess the rest of my life because Jesus died on the cross and so I can be forgiven. 
Now, Jesus died on the cross so you could be delivered from sin. Not so you could just go on and sin and confess. The angel said to Mary, you remember, you, you shall call His name Jesus for He shall what? Save His people from their sins. Not in their sins, but from their sins. I like that because that's, that's hope. That's hope that I can overcome that. I'm not going to be stuck in the gutter of sin and death. I can overcome it. If you choose to come to the cross, you're going to see results. You're going to have consequences. I mean, not only do you have consequences for bad things and sins, you have consequences for good things when you come to the cross. There are good consequences. You remember we started out by looking at Revelation chapter 1 and it said that Jesus is the one that loves us and washed us from our sins. He loved us and if somebody really loves you and He manifests His love, what could happen? Or actually, what should happen? As I think about it, it doesn't always happen. (coughs) But if somebody really loved you a lot, and they start manifesting that love to you, what could happen? You're right. That's the reaction, isn't it? You might love them back. In this world, we sometimes call that falling in love. That happens because somebody's attracted to somebody else and they start saying and doing nice things. You know, to them because they have an attraction. They they love them. And if you love somebody, you start doing something nice for them and speaking nice to them, there's a chance that they might just love you back. Now, love is not something you can force, is it? You cannot ever go to somebody with a gun and make him or her love you. You can make them obey you, <laughs> but you cannot make them love you. That's impossible. Love has to do with the heart, doesn't it? Love cannot be commanded. It cannot be forced. Do you know, friends, the only kind of service that God is interested in at all is from people that love Him and want to do His will? That's a strange idea to to some people because they don't understand what God is like. But did you know that God is not the slightest bit interested in forcing you to do anything? God does not use force regarding your will. He never will. He never has. He never will. God only uses one weapon in order to win you and to save you. And if that doesn't work, there's nothing else that He has in reserve. You know what that weapon is that He uses? 1 John 3 and verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. See the reaction of love? The reaction to love? We understand what love is by the demonstration that Jesus made on the cross. It is the greatest demonstration that there has ever been made of the love of God. Now notice what it says in 1 John 4 and verse 19. So, 
we love Him because what? He first loved us. So love cannot be forced. You cannot make somebody love you. And I'll say that this actually reverently. Even God cannot make you love. He can't do it. And He won't. But He's given the strongest attracting force in the whole universe to attract you to Himself. And it's so powerful that if you don't resist, you'll come to Him. You'll, you'll love Him. And what is that attractive magnetic force that draws people to Him? Jesus said in John 12 verse 32, He said, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto Me. So what is it? It's the cross, isn't it? Well, what about the cross is it? The cross of Jesus is the largest demonstration that has ever and will ever be made of the love that God has for those that He has created. It's kind of a mystery for us, isn't it? Notice this from the book Steps to Christ, page 15. The more we study the divine character in the light of the cross, the more we see mercy, tenderness, and forgiveness blended with equity and justice. And the more clearly we discern innumerable evidences of a love that is infinite and a tender pity surpassing a mother's yearning sympathy for her wayward child. That's what happens when we study the divine character, God's character, in the light of the cross. Did you know that even the angels in heaven study the cross? And those that are redeemed, those of us that are redeemed will be studying it throughout eternity. It's the greatest demonstration that's possible to make. It would be impossible for God Himself to say, I could have done more. He's done everything that could be done. I mean, study the story for yourself and ask yourself the question, could God have done more? Could He have done more? Now here's another question for you. Since that is the most that can be done to attract the sinner to the Lord, if that doesn't work, how are you going to be saved? Well, beloved, you're not going to be saved because there's no reserve force. God doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't have a plan B to save you. If the cross does not attract you, there is nothing else. There are no second chances. Some who preach the secret rapture fiction, and we're seeing more and more of it today, especially since Hollywood has made a movie about it. Uh, they're preaching a second chance, as if God didn't do enough the first time. I'm sorry, but God sent all heaven in Jesus Christ to save us, and the cross demonstrates that. And if you reject that love long enough, you're not. 
you'll not receive a second chance for you've, you've spurred the love of God revealed in His Son. And quite honestly, friends, it wouldn't matter if you did receive a second chance. By the way, mankind is actually in their second chance right now. We're in probation. You know, right now. But you wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. You'd make the same decision the second time. And you'd make the same decision the third time. And the fourth. See, by saying there's a third and fourth chance of saying, well, God wasn't fair the second time. God wasn't fair the third time. That's a skewed idea on the character of God. God wants to save all who can be saved. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? So it wouldn't matter if there was second, third, fourth. You'd still make the same decision. Now's the only time you have to make your decision for or against accepting the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. As I've mentioned several times, especially to the youth, and when I say the youth, to my kids and any those that are younger, but I say to everybody, the question that the Father in Heaven is asking each one of us is what are you going to decide about the gift of my Son? I mean... Every religious thing we discuss, the doctrines we study, the theology we haggle over, that's important for discovering the truth. But it all begins on our decision about the gift of the Son of God. What will you do with Jesus? God will lead us, the Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth in those other areas. But what are you going to decide about Jesus? Whose side are you on? Are you going to spurn this love? Or are you going to accept it? And are you going to return it? That's what the cross is asking us. What will we do with the cross? When Jesus is lifted up, are we being drawn to Him or not? Do we love Him because He first loved us? And this is one of the first results that happens when a person comes to the cross. I believe when they think about why the cross. When you see the love of God, something happens inside. Have you been to the cross long enough so that something has happened in your heart and in your mind? Or is it just a story? Do you understand what Jesus dying on the cross has done for you? Has the result or the consequence of coming to the cross happened in your mind and in your heart? Do you love Jesus? I told myself when I put that on, wrote that down, my wife's going to go, Oh, yes, I love Jesus. <laughs> I just knew it. <laughs> well, let me tell you, if that consequence of the cross has not happened in your heart, all your profession of Christianity, going to church, doing whatever works you do that are right and good, all that's worthless. Your religion is absolutely worthless if that's, that hasn't happened in your heart. I mean, if you, if you have not come to the cross and if you don't love Him, it's worthless, isn't it? 
Paul said if you had all faith and you had the gift of prophecy, you had understood all mysteries and all knowledge, and if you give all your goods to the poor and you gave your body to be burned even, if you do all that and you don't have love, he says it's, it's not worth a thing. Do you love Jesus? <laughs> oh yes, somebody says, I love Him. Of course I love Him. What's Jesus say about that? John fourteen fifteen. Well, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, that's a very simple statement, isn't it? Prove you love me. You say it with your mouth, right? We've got the symbols all around. Well, there's one more consequence of coming near the cross that I want to share, but let's take a a quick look at what we've already studied. First, we see an infinite, boundless, immeasurable love that God has for you and for me when we come to the cross. He provided for us another chance. In essence, we're each on probation, aren't we? Second, we see that Jesus had to do this because of our sins. Not because He made any mistakes. And we see that He is the only one that could do this and save us. And that's what it said in 1 Corinthians 15.3. And that means that, what? Sin is terrible, doesn't it? It's a terrible thing. And that I can never love sin or engage in sin again because I'm choosing to follow Jesus. I cannot deliberately do that which sent Him to the cross. To love sin is to hate Jesus. To love Jesus is to hate sin. And that's the road we're walking, isn't it? The third thing. We saw that love cannot be forced. And that we love Him because what? He first loved us. And unless that's happened in my heart, all my religion's worthless. Fourth, we saw that if I do love Him, I'll keep His commandments. I'll obey Him. If I really love Him, I'll keep His commandments. It says the same thing in 1 John 5, verse 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. That word there in the Greek means burdensome. It's not a burden to keep them. We want to keep them because our heart's been changed. Now we're going to see one more thing. And this one is a very important one. It's an important... I like looking at it this way. It's an important consequence of coming to the cross. <laughs> John 3.16, one of the most well-known texts in the Bible. Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. He said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I want you to especially notice the word, Whosoever. What does the word whosoever mean? It simply means anybody. Anybody in this room. Anybody in this city. Well, more literally, anybody in the world. Whosoever. Now when I come to the cross of Christ and I start to think through in my mind what it's all about, I realize that this wasn't done just for me. Oh, it's personal. 
But it wasn't just for me. It was done for me because I'm one of the whosoever. (laughs) It was done for me, but not just for me. It was done for every human being in the world. Now, if I think that through in my mind, is that going to change my estimate of the worth of a human being? How much are you worth? You know, we, Deb and I, we went in, we're trying to help Josh and Kayla get their first home. And we went in and they did the preliminary check and all this stuff. And it it turns out that uh, Deb and I aren't worth very much. <laughs> but you know something? That's the way earth looks at it. The world looks at it. I'm worth the life of the Son of God. All heaven. Let that sink in. God decided that you were worth the life of His Son. He was going to offer His Son. He's going to allow His Son to die to save you. That's how much you're worth. And usually, the more something's worth, the more careful we are in how we deal with it, isn't it? Usually the case. Let me give you an example. Just a simple example. In my driveway, I have a bunch of rocks. I have tons of rocks in my driveway. I break them up, I scatter them around so my car can drive on them. Right? But there are some rocks that you don't deal with, you know, with a sledgehammer and a rake and a hoe. You find those rocks down at the jewelers. And when you you look at them, they're in a case. And there's velvet on the case. That stone does not know any more than a rock in my driveway. So why is it lying on velvet? Because it's precious. Some stones are precious and some stones are not precious. You deal with precious stones differently, don't you? One of the consequences of coming to the cross is that I begin to see how much one person is worth to God. And that one person, by the way, includes my wife or my husband or my children. includes other people in my family. It's not just talking about strangers walking by. It's every person. Remember what was the word? Whosoever. So will that affect the way that I treat them? Will it affect the way that I talk to them? Do you know what God designs for the family? God wanted your family to be a little heaven on earth. That's what He wanted. He didn't want it to be like hellfire, the lake of fire. He wanted it to be a little heaven on earth. I want to read to you something that Ellen White wrote in the Signs of the Times, November 11, 1892. And this, I think, will help, help us to understand that if we come to the cross, it's going to change everything in our home. Or it should, as Jerry said. It should. She says, if we are doers of the word, we shall daily bear the cross after Jesus, subdue self, and thus bring harmony into the home life. Into what life? 
the neighbor's life, the home life. The sweetest type of heaven is a home where the Spirit of the Lord presides. If the will of God is fulfilled, the husband and wife will respect each other and cultivate love and confidence. Anything that would mar the peace and unity of the family should be firmly repressed and kindness and love should be cherished. He who manifests the spirit of tenderness, forbearance, and love will find that that the same spirit will be reflected upon him. Where the spirit of God reigns, there will be no talk of unsuitability in the marriage relation. That's an important statement right there. If Christ indeed is formed within the hope of glory, there will be union and love in the home. Christ abiding in the heart of the wife will be at agreement with Christ abiding in the heart of the husband. They will be striving together for the mansions Christ has gone to prepare for those who love Him. So if we don't take some advanced steps, if we cannot figure out how it relates to the way we deal with each other at home, we don't understand the cross yet. Somehow there's something missing in our minds. Among Christians today, we profess to follow Christ. We profess to take up His cross. And it is a shame to... Well, really it's a shame. But, you know, the divorce rate among Christians today is about the same. In fact, in some Christian countries, uh, the divorce rate's even higher than in people that don't even claim to believe on the cross of Christ. And that just baffles me. How can that be? The devil has stolen some things, hasn't he? The constant barrage and attack on the family unit. This gender article you talked about in the school. Can't call kids boys or girls anymore. Exactly. What is going on, I believe, is that the cross is the focal point of our religion, but we don't really understand it. What is happening in our homes proves that we don't understand it. (laughs) Do you want the Holy Spirit to teach you what the cross is all about? I do. I want to know. Because it will change everything in my heart. That's what the promise is. It'll change things in my home. It'll change the way I speak to other members of my family. And I'll start to treat people not like the rocks in my driveway (laughs) where I drive over them, but like precious stones that lay in cases on velvet. And when that happens, instead of my home or your home being like purgatory... (laughs) The Lord will make it like heaven. Do you understand why I stated at the beginning that the cross is one of the hardest subjects to preach about and understand? It has very practical consequences. And if the consequences are not happening in my life, somehow I've missed something. I don't understand it. I've not internalized the message of the cross something has gone 
awry. But do you want to have a change? The cross is the great center of attraction. It is the thing that will change you on the inside, and that is where we need to be changing, by the way. He's on the inside, isn't it? change on the inside, it will be reflected on the outside. Absolutely right. If you want that change to happen in your heart and in your life, I invite you to pray with me now. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your undying love that you are willing to give up your son, that we are seen and held as so precious by you that you would allow Jesus to come and die for us. And we're so thankful that Jesus decided He made the choice to come and give up His life so that we may have an opportunity to be saved. We look at the cross, we often, maybe too often, Father, we see the symbol, but we don't see the substance. Please forgive us for that. Help us to have understanding. Because when we have understanding, we can come to the foot of the cross and not only give everything to you, but we can be changed. Our heart can be changed. And because He loved us, we will, first, we will love Him. And then we can share this with others around us, our family. I'd like my home to be a little heaven on earth where I can run to be refreshed. I know that someday you're preparing homes for us and someday you'll return to receive us so that where you are we may be also. And we will experience the true heaven. Father, please forgive us our sins and help us to glory in the cross. We pray in Jesus' name.